Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Thank you for being here. If you're, this is your new time, I'm, or your first time, I'm so glad that you are here. Um, we have a few birthdays here. I'm not going to embarrass everybody. But I did want to mention one. I don't know if Julie is in here or not. Is Julie in here? Okay, Julie, you got to raise your hand. Okay, so everyone sees you. Okay, I, listen, I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to honor Julie publicly. Um, <clears throat> Julie uh, Pierce has been our church secretary for over 30 years, I believe. And um, we love Julie. Julie does so much more than just uh, secretarial work. She's... Uh, if you need it done, you call Julie, but don't call Julie because she doesn't need more done. So <laughs> she doesn't need to do, to do it all. But uh, she's a counselor to so many people and has been through the years. And we just love her and, and, and we want to honor you today, Julie. Thank you. Yeah. Um, also, just want to share with you, thank you to everybody who helped with our outreach event on Thursday, the No Tricks, Just Treats event. We had around 650 visitors, uh, which is awesome. People from our neighborhood, lots of great costumes and great conversations we were able to have with our neighbors. And so if you helped in some way with that, thank you uh, as, we, as we reach out and love our neighbors and, and serve them. It was, a, it was a fun time. Today we're going to look at the final passage in the book of Acts. And next week I hope to review kind of look back at Acts and review some of the main themes that have, we've talked about over the past 75 sermons in this book. And, and then after that, uh, we're going to return to the book of Zechariah for a couple of sermons with Dylan. And so we, uh, we look forward to even what's to come today and in the next weeks. And at the end of today's sermon, uh, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So let's get right to it. If you have your Bible with you, uh, please open with me to Acts chapter 28, verse 17. And remember from last week's passage that uh, despite many dangers, toils, and snares on his voyage to Rome, Paul safely arrived there across the Mediterranean Sea just as Jesus had promised him. Jesus had told Paul that it was necessary for Paul to stand before Kaiser himself, Nero, and to testify in Rome to the facts about the resurrected Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And in Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself, we read, uh, in his own lodging, but he was chained to a Roman soldier who guarded him. So before we read what Paul did in Rome, let's ask God to help us. Lord, we thank you again for this time we have together today. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for laying down your life for your sheep to save us forever from sin and Satan and hell and death and to save us into friendship with you. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us, revealing your will, revealing your plan through every word of scripture which you testify that you breathed out. And we ask that as we open this word today, you would use today's passage to do your will among us. Please uh, encourage your flock, convict us of sin, call more into your flock, and Lord, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you 
We ask that you would please protect us from the evil one, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read Acts 28, 17 to 22. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Okay, so only three days now after his arrival in Rome, Paul, he gets to work, okay, which is kind of funny because he's a prisoner. And though instead of seeing his imprisonment as something that has defeated him, Paul sees his imprisonment as another opportunity to tell a new group of people about Jesus. And it was almost always Paul's routine first to preach the gospel to the Jews in any town that he went to. In Rome here, obviously this was an enormous city in the first century, probably around four to five million people in Rome. And up to 50,000 of those people were Jewish. So Paul sent word to the key leaders of the Jewish community in Rome and, and asked them to come meet with him at his, at his lodging. And his purpose in meeting with them was twofold. First, Paul wanted to, to give a defense of himself in case these Jews had heard bad things about him from the other Jews in the empire. Uh, he explains to them that, that he'd been wrongly arrested, and so far the, the Roman courts had not found him guilty of any crime. And, and Paul says that even though most of the Jews hate him, he still wants good for the Jewish people, and so he's not bringing any charges against them. And then the second reason Paul wants to meet with these Roman Jews is because he says he wants to witness to them about the hope of Israel, Jesus Christ. And, and the Jews are interested in hearing more, especially uh, they want to find out why there's so much animosity toward the Christians. And so let's read what happened next here in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So this verse tells us here a lot about how Paul proclaimed the gospel to these Jews. He, uh, his approach here is, is totally consistent with what we've seen him do in the past. And the author, Luke, tells us four things about how Paul witnessed to the Roman Jews according to this verse. First, Paul spoke to them from morning till evening. So this wasn't a five-minute conversation. This wasn't a, uh, an hour-long conversation. This was a full-day immersion in Scripture, immersion in ancient prophecies, immersion in Paul's personal testimony about Jesus. 
And uh, devoting an entire day to these non-believers obviously required something from Paul, right? It required him to spend a full day with non-believers talking about spiritual matters. And it also required these non-believers to give something too, to spend a day talking about spiritual matters with Paul and learning about Jesus. And as I read about this, what, maybe 12-hour day that these Christians uh, that, that Paul and devoted to talking with these non-Christians about Jesus, um, I wonder to myself if in our society this would ever happen today. Um, and my prayer as a result was that God would catalyze the hearts of non-Christians and Christians so that all of us would be more interested and concerned about spiritual and eternal matters. And we have so many distractions. We have so many appointments, different things to do that, that block us from knowing God and from knowing his, his word more. And so, my, you know, our prayer is may the Lord may give us a big appetite for him. May God just give you a big appetite for him. And if you're not a believer, may God give you a big appetite for him <laughs> and for, for truth, for, for, for seeking um, truth beyond what you can see and beyond these 70 years if you're granted 70 years on earth. Second here, verse 23 says that Paul expounded to the Jews. To expound means to explain something or to expose the meaning of something. And so what did Paul expound? It says that he expounded scripture. It says here that, that he was expounding to them the law of Moses and the prophets, uh, largely what we refer to as our Old Testament. That is all of the scriptures written before Jesus came to earth for his public ministry. And so Paul expounded the scriptures to them because these were the God-breathed, written revelations of God that had been handed down from generation to generation among this specific people group, these Jews. And so Paul expounds to them their own sacred texts to show how those texts revealed and pointed forward to and were fulfilled in this Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. Third, it says that Paul testified to the kingdom of God. So to testify means to, to solemnly assert something, often offering firsthand authentication. To, to solemnly assert something, often offering firsthand authentication. Um, as a former persecutor of Christians who had encountered the resurrected Jesus several, on several occasions, <laughs> Um, as a man whose entire belief system and life and future had been radically changed by this person, Jesus. And as a servant who, who had then performed many signs and wonders by the power of Jesus' Holy Spirit, Paul now testified in a powerful way to these Jews in Rome about the kingdom of God and saying, Jesus is king. And fourth, Paul tried to convince them about Jesus, it says. He, 
So this, this means that Paul's expounding of Scripture, his testifying about the kingdom of God was going somewhere, right? He had a goal in mind. Paul wanted these Roman Jews to believe that Jesus really died and rose again. And more than that, Paul wanted them not just to believe the facts about it, but to then put their faith in Jesus. He wanted them to, sometimes we say, to believe on Jesus, right? As in, you're, you're putting all your trust on Jesus. Because it is, why did he want this? It is only through faith in the gospel of God's grace that anyone could be saved. And so Paul tried to convince them about this. He tried to convince them about Jesus because he wanted good for them. So here, having identified these four ways that Paul proclaimed the gospel to these Jews in Rome, um, I want to kind of extrapolate from them four applications related to the role of Scripture in our conversations with non-believers and to the role of Scripture in our belief system in general, okay? So first is this, from this passage, believe that the Bible is entirely true and without error. Over and over throughout Scripture, it claims that its words are entirely true because, and this is why, it is the breathed out, written down self-revelation of God himself. And together, all of its books, its letters, its poems, its prophecies are one integrated, interconnected unit. And so if we do not trust one part of that unit, one part of the Bible, we cannot trust any of the Bible because it's all interdependent. Okay? Sometimes people say, I'll hear people say, well, I'm just going to focus on the red letters of the Bible, the words that Jesus, Jesus spoke. Well, then the question is, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he was God? Well, then you must believe that God's word is Jesus' word, that it's not just the red letters, right? Um, if you say that you will only accept the, the, only the, the actual words of Jesus, well, one thing I would do is encourage you to read those words because you will probably find them unacceptable to you. Because I think some people might have the idea that, well, Jesus mainly taught good morals. Well, if you read all the words of Jesus, he says some really difficult things. You cannot follow me unless you hate your mother and, bro and father and brother and sister. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Um, that doesn't sound like the, the moral teacher that I think a lot of people think of. And so you need to wrestle with those scriptures. What do they mean in context and all that? But also, if, if you say that you can only affirm the red letters in the Bible, your view of scripture is in contradiction with Jesus' view of scripture. Because Jesus affirmed the total truthfulness of scripture. And in fact, he quoted the parts that, from the Old Testament that seem most incredible to refer to the historical resurrection that actually happened. Just as Jonah's in the belly of the well for three days, that's what's gonna happen to me. He wasn't using it allegorically. He's like, this happened, this, and this is gonna happen. And so what happens is if we believe there are fractures and fissures and mistakes throughout scripture, then we really can have zero assurance about anything we read in it. Um, you can't have... You, 
you really can't have confidence about Jesus Christ or about his divinity or his death and resurrection or his salvation. Disbelief in God's word really should obliterate any confidence a person has in eternal life through faith in Jesus. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is one, because the passage says it, but the other reason is because our world, Christians left and right, are going that route in order to try to accommodate culture. And culture changes, and it's always changed. For thousands of years, culture changes, but the one thing that's remained the same is God's word. We're not gonna change that. We're not the authors of it. We don't get to change it. And so, we must either trust Jesus, who prayed to the Father, Father, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. We believe Jesus, or we must not trust Jesus in his scripture, but we cannot mock the Lord by saying, you know what, we're gonna decide, gonna decide which parts of scripture are reliable and trustworthy and true. And uh, believing that the Bible is entirely true obviously does not mean it's always easy to understand or that it uh, does not contain paradoxes or that it gives a comprehensive account of everything that's happened in human history. That's not the goal of scripture. Um, rather, believing the, in the inerrant word of God means believing that is in, it is entirely true in everything it affirms, even if it's difficult for humans to understand. You would think it would be a little difficult to understand if God is the author, right? In my mind, if, if I can understand every one of God's thoughts in scripture, um, that would make me God, and I'm not God. I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm created, I'm not the creator. And so we, we wanna approach scripture humbly. Um, if you look at this passage, the grounds for Paul's authoritative pleading with these people, what's he standing on? The authority of Scripture. And today in 2019, uh, the only authority I have as a pastor or you have as a Christian for your gospel preaching, for your telling others about Jesus, is the authority of Scripture because that become, comes from the highest authority, which is God himself. And, and obviously we want to um, humbly recognize that many of our neighbors do not believe this, right? And, and that, but that shouldn't come as a surprise at all. Paul, Paul talked a lot about this. It's foolishness to the world to believe this. Um, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Um, but the reason for that is at this point, most of our neighbors in our community and in our society do not see, and in our world, do not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They don't find Jesus glorious. And if they don't find Jesus glorious, then why in the world would they find his word glorious? And nevertheless, though, um, Jesus tells us, stand firm. <laughs> we must never waver on our belief in the truth and authority of God. Jesus and his own word, okay? And, and so we pray this, that in our conversations with those who disagree with us as Christians, God, would you fill us with your love and patience and kindness to those who disagree, right? The second application here from verse 23 is in the form of a question. In your spiritual conversations with those who don't believe, do you mainly view scripture as a reference to be cited 
or as a sword to be swung? Is scripture mainly just a reference to be cited or is it a sword to be swung? Yes, citing Bible verses to support the truth of our words is important. But this is the question, does the proclamation of the word itself have any inherent power by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because when we read here about Paul expounding the scriptures to the Jews, I think he was not only looking to scripture as you know, a reference for his, to, to back up his arguments, but that he was also actively swinging the sword of God's word to pierce the darkness, okay? When we proclaim God's saving word to others, when the Holy Spirit wields his word as his sword, we must not underestimate what God can do with that. The Holy Spirit can use scripture to slice through the darkness, to cut through the chains of those who are in bondage to sin. The, sword, uh, the, the Holy Spirit can swing his word to break through rock-hard hearts with the message of God's love for them. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul lists the different uh, pieces of, of the armor of God that Jesus' followers are instructed to put on as, as they advance the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness. And isn't it interesting that the only offensive piece of armor that Paul lists, the only weapon he tells us to use here is the sword of the spirit, he says, which is the word of God. When Satan tempted Jesus after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, how did Jesus counterattack? By, by swinging the sword of scripture. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now hear me right, we, we don't want, I'm not talking about this, I'm not we don't want to use scripture as a weapon to hurt people or to attack people. Rather, in our conversations with others, both with non-believers and believers, let's remember that, yeah, scripture is the authority we cite, but scripture is also not passive. It is the living word of God, which the Holy Spirit graciously swings to pierce the darkness, to save the lost, and to sanctify the found. And the third application from verse 23 is this. Never stop learning the Bible. Never stop learning the Bible. The fact that Paul was able to expound the scriptures from morning to evening shows that Paul knew the scriptures really well. I don't know about you, but for me, that can be a daunting task, thinking, okay, um, like I have a friend who's a missionary in Thailand, and he has pastors come down from Burma where it's illegal to be a Christian and they, he has seminary training with them for a week of intensive training and he says um, and he just teach it, he's like we're just going to walk through Romans in a week as our only text and for me I'm, I get a little nervous and I'm a pastor and I'm like wow could I, could I do that can I sit with Romans and just go through that all the way and immerse them uh, in that and I think, I think I could but that's what Paul's doing here. That's what we want to be able to do. We want to be comfortable with the, the sword that God has given us. Um, and so if we're going to do what Paul did 
if we're going to do this uh, speaking authoritatively as God's ambassadors, which he says we are, on God's behalf to a lost and dying world, we've got to know the scriptures. And no matter how long we've been reading the Bible, there's always more to learn. There's always more to see. And sometimes Christians, we can be really good at learning more about the Bible before applying it to ourselves. Uh, where did I hear this phrase a long time ago? Um, we are, many of us, are way over-educated as Christians above our level of obedience. We're way more educated about the Bible than our level of obedience. And that's where we want it to come, right? First to our hearts. But, but the point I'm making is that we need to know the word. And so my encouragement is for all of us to keep reading the Bible a little at a time, a lot at a time, uh, depending on what, you know, situations you're at. I mean, when I was in the hospital, um, I just think about, you know, I, I had, uh, sorry, with Eli, I just remember I was there at like 4 a.m., and God just gave me a window of time where it's like I wasn't really doing anything. And so I just read the book of Hebrews, you know, just sitting there by his side reading. And I had enough time to read through the whole thing. And, and so I just, it was, I encourage us to, you know, um, we don't always have to be playing Candy Crush on our phones. Um, we can be filling our minds with truth and, and listening to God's word in the car and doing that. Um, that's not against Candy Crush, okay, if you're a fan of Candy Crush. Um, or Maze Runner or whatever your game of choice is. But uh, I'm just saying, as Christians, um, let's try to know the Bible better than people who aren't Christians. <laughs> right? Let's, uh, do we know like who wrote each book? Like what the theme of each, of each book? What are kind of, you know, someone asked you, so where are the Ten Commandments located? Do you know? Can, can you pick up the Bible? So it's right here. Th these kind of things, it's like we, we want to know um, what are the main verses of each book? How do, these books, how do these books actually work together to tell this, a bigger story of, of creation and the fall into sin and redemption in Jesus and then the restoration that's coming? Um, how does each passage show us the depravity of humanity, just that we're broken and sinful and our need for God's mercy and grace and that ultimately that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Um, it is, it's fun to do. It's fun, it's, it's, it's fun to see God's grace and scripture to apply that to ourselves who are in Christ, claim that, and then also share that with others. So I just think for the, the sake of ourselves and the sake of the world around us, we need to know scripture. And so a few practical applications, I thought, just a few random ideas. Uh, for me and Cindy this year, we bought a chronological Bible, which we never read through, because you know that the scriptures aren't necessarily, uh, the form it's in isn't necessarily in the order in which they were written. Um, and so it's just kind of interesting seeing it in a different sequence, and it's helped us just to have conversations about, oh, I, I get that this happened at this point in history and this and this. It's just a different way of looking at the Bible. Um, you know, if you never read the shortest gospel, the gospel of Mark, you, I encourage you to do that in the next few, 10 days. Um, or, or read through the New Testament with a good study Bible, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, if, if on difficult passages, it might have some explanations or different interpretations of what that means. And... 
you know, one of the challenges of trying to read a, be, a big chunk of scripture at once is that, at least if you're like me, I, I, I don't love skimming over problematic passages. Like, if I have an issue with it, I want to wrestle with it. I want to, before I just move on, it's like, okay. That's why I read really slowly. Because I'm like, I want to figure out what does this mean or what are the different interpretations this, uh, of this. And then process that with, one, with other people. That's been one of the awesome things, honestly, I've really experienced in, in our community group this year is there is something unique that happens when you are studying the Bible with other Christians because they have been in different studies, a lot of them, or maybe they haven't, and they are all, we're all bringing to the table different experiences and, and uh, things that we've heard about Scripture, and we're processing them together. People in our group who are like from other religions uh, in the past who came out of other religions and said, man, I always was taught that that's what this scripture meant. And like for this week, we had somebody say, I was taught growing up that you cannot trust the Bible. And it's just interesting, like, oh, wow, like that's really interesting because I could see how if you read this verse, it would mean something really different if you're coming from a different angle. And so um, reading scripture in the context of community group, um, memorizing passages that are meaningful to you um, or that would help you share the gospel with others, um, for parents and uh, grandparents, a couple of things I would say. Read an actual Bible in your home. This is the thing. When your kids see you on your phone, they don't see you reading your Bible. As far as they know, you're looking at Sports Center or the news or something else. Do they know that mom and dad are reading the Bible? Um, grandparents. Do they know that, that you have a Bible out and you open it and you read it? Um, and then this is the other thing. Like another thing you can do with your kids, just take a little passage of scripture. I do this at youth group sometimes when I'm talking to youth group and they love it. Act it out. Act it out together. And they'll remember it. And then you, after you act it out and you're kind of silly and stuff, then you come back together and you're like, okay, so what does this mean? What does this say about us and about God and, and the good news of the gospel? Um, anyways, you know, and I hope, you know, there's tons of podcasts and books and YouTube channels. I just want to encourage us to grow in our love for God's word together. Um, because it's important for us, it's important for our neighbors, regardless of whether they trust in Jesus. Um, because as we understand the Bible more, I think it will actually, it's going to help Christians and non-Christians better. Um, Okay, so those are the three application points I'll get from, from verse 23. The, believe that the Bible is entirely true and trustworthy. Uh, view scripture not only as a reference to sight, but as a sword to be swung in this, against the, the kingdom of darkness. And, and then never stop learning the Bible. Okay, so back to the passage. After, after Paul spent all day expounding scripture and testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them that Jesus is Lord, what happened? Well, let's read verses 24 to 28. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet. So again here, Paul is, Paul himself is asserting the God breathed out uh, uh, scripture here. 
He says, and he's quoting this prophecy, verse 26, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So, so here the great news is that some of the Jews were convinced, right, that, uh, by what Paul said. It says, uh, we don't know what it means that they actually, that they were convinced. Did they actually trust in Jesus or, or did they simply believe the gospel facts? We don't know, but regardless, Paul had made some really good headway with some of these people. And at the same time, it says that others in the group didn't believe. And, and right before they left Paul's lodging place there in Rome, Paul quoted a prophecy to them, an ancient prophecy, about their unwillingness to see the truth. And this is the same passage that Jesus quoted to the Jews. And this prophecy was what the Holy Spirit commanded the prophet Isaiah to tell the Jews at the beginning of his ministry hundreds of years earlier, that these unbelievers will hear the truth but never understand it because their hearts have grown dull. Their ears are tired of hearing. Their eyes are closed to God. And as a result, they will not see the truth and turn to Jesus and be eternally healed. And so Paul asserts again, like he has in past cities, that he will now proclaim Christ to the non-Jews the Gentiles, because they will listen, which would have been extremely offensive to the Jews when he said that. So the Bible describes our spiritual condition before we trust in Jesus. It uses these phrases. Spiritually blind, deaf, in bondage to sin, enemies of God, dead, and unable to please God. So this was the spiritual condition of the Jewish men here that Paul was speaking to. So then how, if we are born spiritually dead to God, are we able to become more hardened, more closed off to God, more dull, and more blind to God? Well, just because God has not made a person born again through faith in Jesus does not mean they're uninterested in God or in spirituality or in religion or in morality. The vast majority of the world is, is religious. However, only a minority would claim to be born again in, in Jesus. The fact that sin has severely warped every part of our existence as humans, our thinking, our feeling, our wills, our body, does not mean that sin has, that God has allowed sin to corrupt us so that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Um, all of us, believers and unbelievers, are sinners. We, we, do, we have not disobeyed God. We are part of a human race that has, oh, sorry, we, we have not obeyed God. We are part of a human race that has not obeyed God. But thank God, also, he's given us a conscience which prevents us from doing much more evil than we might otherwise do. But God's prophecy in this passage reveals that the spiritual condition of those who do not love the Lord can worsen 
if they remain unrepentant toward God. See, over time, their hearts can grow dull to matters of eternity. Their ears can close. Their eyes can stop looking for the truth. They can choose to blind themselves. They can choose to pursue evil. They can harden their own hearts toward God. And in some instances, God can even farther, uh, further harden their hearts toward him if they continue in their rebellion against him. Um, I appreciated this quote by Pastor Tony Merida, which says this, hearing the word of God always has an effect on people, but the same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. Either people are melted and moved by Jesus when they hear the word, or they, or they reject him and become increasingly hard-hearted toward him as a result. No one can listen to the gospel and remain neutral about it. That's why we must warn unbelievers that they must respond positively to God's word, for the Lord may give them what they want, eternal separation from him and from his grace. And so what's Paul's warning to these Jews in Rome? What, and what is God's warning here through this text to non-believers today? He'd probably say the, the exact same thing he told Paul before Paul was a Christian. Stop kicking against the goads. Paul says, turn away from your obstinance. Ask the Lord to soften your heart and to show him your glory. Believe the gospel of God's grace that you have heard proclaimed over and over again and trust Jesus to save your soul. Be saved before it's too late. Okay, now, moving on. A quick statement about verse 29, which some of your Bibles will have and some of yours won't. Some translations include this verse, which says, and when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. The reason this verse is left out of some translations is because it's not found in any of the earliest manuscripts we have. The earliest manuscript with verse 29 in it is from the eighth century. So the scholars who recommend leaving this verse out believe that the verse was added later. Regardless, the verse, it doesn't change the meaning of the passage at all. So let's just move on and read verses 30 to 31. It says, talking about Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The main thing I want to say about these final verses is that, man, I pray that future generations will be able to say the same thing about our church and about each of us, that we welcomed all who came to us, that we proclaimed the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the king. He's the, he's the kingdom of, uh, king of the kingdom of light, that as king, he can make demands of us. He demands our faith in him for our own well-being, lest we suffer and perish apart from him. And, and, and I pray that we would be remembered as having taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May the Lord grant that kind of gospel ministry through this church, through our community groups, through our homes, and through each of our lives. 
Paul waited there in Rome for two years to testify before Nero. And as he did that, he not only told everybody who would visit him about Jesus, but during that time he also wrote several letters to different churches throughout the empire. This is when he most likely wrote the letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. And according to tradition, um, and to several comments that Paul makes in his letters, it appears that Paul testified by Nero, and he was acquitted and released. And then he had another two-year span, most likely, where he spread the gospel further, and maybe even took the gospel to Spain. I don't know for sure. But after two years of freedom, Paul was arrested again and imprisoned in Rome again. And during his second imprisonment, he, he most likely wrote a second letter to Timothy. And it's supposed that he was executed sometime between 64 and 67 AD. He was probably in his early 60s when he was martyred. What we see here, though, is that to the end of his life, Paul was zealous for Jesus Christ. He can be zealous about a lot of things. But Jesus talks about the Jews and different religious people being zealous for a lot of things. But you don't want to be zealous for the wrong things and totally miss the mark. Paul wanted to know Christ more to the day he went to see him. He wanted to tell more people about Jesus Christ. He wanted to love people well, and he did that as he showed them hospitality even in his prison lodging. So let me conclude here with what Paul wrote to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This morning we're going to take communion together, the Lord's Supper together. And as the communion servers come forward, um, let's just take a few minutes of silence to talk to the Lord, um, thank the Lord, confess any sins that are hindering your fellowship with the Lord, um, praise the Lord, just Take a few minutes here just to talk to the Lord.
We offer these prayers to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.